Is this a bad time? Bob Wiley, a man with multiple phobias and severe anxiety, invades the family vacation of his therapist. Join us as we talk about unethical college professors, a short trip from Chicago, and a bittersweet explosion. We also share our thoughts on the Matrix Resurrections before finding out if What About Bob stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. My name is Alan Noah, and I am the only person here. You are not the only person here. I am also here. My name is James Brief. I have been doing this with you for almost 300 episodes or so. And uh, yeah, I'm here, Al. Oh, I didn't see you there. This is number 291, by the way. But yeah, how you doing, James? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm enjoying the last of these uh, HBO Max exclusive uh, releases because, uh, as you remember, um, you know, early on the pandemic, HBO Max, when it uh, was launching, decided to make this big uh, announcement and that all of the Warner Brothers releases and, and the subsidiaries that year were going to release on HBO Max day of release of the theaters. You know, that was very controversial. And did it affect the box office take of a lot of big films? Maybe, maybe not. But um, did you see a lot of those Warner Brothers films? Uh, a bunch of them. I missed a few. I watched the new Space Jam with the kids. I don't know that I would have paid money to see that in the theater. I watched The Suicide Squad, which I very much enjoyed. I missed Dune, which I got chewed out for by friend of the podcast, Adam Pincus, who was like, what? You didn't watch it? And I was like, eh, I missed it. I mean, it'll come back to HBO Max, or maybe it's already back. Uh, but I, I need to watch that one. I also watched uh, Suicide Squad and Space Jam, but I saw Dune, I saw I saw Mortal Kombat, I saw that one. Of course you did. I mean, I wasn't going to see that in the theaters, to be honest. I was not going to pay $20 to see that, so I was glad I got to see it. It was fun. And I also uh, saw The Matrix Resurrections. Did you see it? I did. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really love the... Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions, as we discussed in December, but we were talking about those movies, and when the fourth one came out, I was like, yeah, okay, might as well watch it, and I sat on the couch one night, and I turned it on, and I could not believe just how terrible that movie was. I mean, wow, was that movie garbage. I hated everything. Every second of it. And I didn't like the sequels, as you'll remember, but like I thought this one really took the franchise to a new low. What did you think? Um, I felt very different than you. Um, I gave it two and a half stars. 
I liked a lot of it. I, I thought, um, you know, I haven't seen Carrie Ann Moss in a long time. She's very good. It's a shame we haven't seen her in a while. I think Keanu, he's just becoming a better and better actor just through the years. I, th- I think he's just really good at this genre. Um, there were some very interesting things that they did, you know, without getting too much into details. I didn't really like uh, what they did with the Morpheus character. I liked some ideas of, of what they did, and I thought that there were some things that were, oh, that's a very clever way of, of giving an explanation of this. I very much enjoyed uh, Neil Patrick Harris's character. Um, I've said on here a lot of times, I do not watch uh, trailers. So, of course, I, I didn't watch the trailer for this. Did you see the trailer for this film? No. Go watch the trailer. It's to the soundtrack of um, White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane. And I saw this after the film, and I was not blown away for this film. And when I say two and a half stars, I completely understand why you did not like this film, Al. Like, some stuff clicked with me, but... I'm telling you, watch this trailer. You will be so excited for this film and the trailer that they don't really deliver on necessarily in the film. I did watch that trailer, actually, now that you're mentioning it. It makes me think of the trailer for the original Suicide Squad, which was so good. And then the movie was eh. Right. Wasn't that to Queen, something like that? Yeah, it was a Queen song. I don't even remember which one, but it was really, really well cut. I don't understand how anyone could watch The Matrix Resurrections and not despise it. It's got like a 60-some-odd percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Some people liked it. Some people liked certain parts of it. I just couldn't fathom how horrible it was. Clearly, Lana Wachowski didn't want to make this movie. There's like a whole scene where like the movie talks about how Warner Brothers made them make this movie that they didn't want to make. Yeah, that was And bad. that put a really sour taste in my mouth. Then later, there's a part where Neo says, I still know Kung Fu. I mean, it was like laughably terrible. It's kind of like those memes where you see the thing of like, I should have bought 20 million sequels and then asked it to write a sequel. This is what it came up with. Like, This movie's script really feels like that, and it would not surprise me at all if eventually there comes a story where Lana Wachowski says that she deliberately made this movie as terrible as she could just so she could get the paycheck from Warner Brothers and then not be bothered to make a fifth one. Maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she wanted it to be an amazing thing, but I just thought it was horrific on everything. Every single level. (laughs) Uh, I I did not have the visceral reaction that you did. But I will say right now, I am so happy I did not watch this film with you. Because that must have been torture, having to hear your live commentary about how much you hated it. Well, I did watch it alone, but I was texting with some friends. And I was saying, like, how much I was just laughing at it. But, like, not in a good way, like, oh, it's meant to be funny, like laughing at its terribleness. Uh, Do not recommend, if you haven't seen it yet, watch something else on HBO Max. But enough about that nonsense. Let's talk about What About Bob? This is a Bill Murray movie that I never saw. And it's crazy that there was a Bill Murray movie that came out in 1991, directed by Frank Oz, and I just never saw it. I don't know how I never saw it, but... I didn't. And you said at the end of last week's episode that you hadn't seen it either, right? 
Right, right. And this is a film I had known about for years. I knew it was a hit. And there have actually been a couple uh, attempts at sitcoms, TV spinoffs of this movie. And it's actually a great premise, I guess, for uh, a sitcom, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how I missed it, but I was thinking like, oh, we haven't watched a Bill Murray movie in a while. So let's watch What About Bob? And if anyone else hasn't seen it, it's about Dr. Leo Marvin, who's played by Richard Dreyfus, And he's a psychiatrist who's on his way to a vacation, a month long vacation with his family in New Hampshire. But then a new patient of his, Bob Wiley, who's played by Bill Murray, tracks him down and makes his life hell. And although Leo's family likes Bob, Dr. Marvin begins to lose his cool around him. The question then becomes, which one of these men truly needs professional help? Mm -hmm. So when this movie came out in 1991, how did it do at the box office? Well, uh, it, it did pretty well. It opened on May 17th, 1991, and it had a reported $39 million budget. It opened at number one with $9.2 million, and then had like... Uh, Six times multiplier, it ended up with $63 million, and it's been you know on TV and streaming and DVDs for years, so I'm sure this has made a lot of money for the producers. Gotcha. Uh, and the movie opens with Bob, he's in his apartment, and he's like doing this mantra to himself. He's saying, I feel good, I feel great, I feel wonderful. Uh, he's talking to his pet fish, whose name is Gil, which I know it's a corny joke, but I can't help it. That makes me laugh. Get it? Fish, Gil, ah, I like ah. that gag. Then you meet the other star of the film, uh, Richard Dreyfuss' character, uh, Dr. Leo Marvin. And he's this very stuck-up, snotty uh, psychiatrist. And he looks exactly like your stereotype of a psychiatrist. Like, he's got the beard. He looks sort of like a very, very rich and well-dressed version of Robin Williams' bearded psychiatrist from Goodwill Hunting. But this is like his very successful uh, colleague. You know, he's in the, like, high rise, and you could tell, I mean, he sees patients, but this guy is, like, he's going to be one of these, like, celebrity doctors. He's promoting his newest book, which is Baby Steps, and it's it's a great title for, like, what one of these, like, self-help books would be titled. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, like, you could 100% see this kind of guy writing this kind of book and this kind of book making the the bestseller list. And yeah, you get the impression right away that this guy is a pompous, arrogant douchebag. And there's a therapist that he knows who calls him up and just basically says, oh, I'm going to refer a patient to you. Uh, he's great. You'll like him. Dr. Marvin's like, oh, he's not a psycho or anything. And the other psychiatrist is like, no, 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 he's fine. You'll love him. Hangs up and says, free. And Dr. Marvin says to his secretary, if a man named Bob calls, you know, we'll make an appointment with him for September after Labor Day, after my vacation. And the the assistant says, oh, he's called several times and he's actually on his way in. And Dr. Marvin's like, oh, OK, that's aggressive. But they meet and Bob is basically just describing all all of his problems, all of his psychoses, all of his fears. He's very nervous about disease, which watching it now is like, eh, well, you know, that doesn't make you crazy. Aren't we all nervous about getting disease? 
I guess not everyone, but a lot of us. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I saw one scene of him walking out of his apartment and kind of looking around the city, I was like, oh, he would be completely not just in a mask, but he would be like in like a March 2020 supermarket outfit. You know, he'd be in gloves and he'd have a face shield and, you know, everything else. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, when he's like listing off like all of the things that bother him, everything that he's scared of, I mean, it's funny because it's Bill Murray and, you know, he's talking about like pelvic discomfort and it's just a really funny bit. Um, and then, you know, he says that he's divorced because his wife didn't like Neil Diamond. And so he left his wife and Dr. Marvin's like, um, maybe she left you because of all of your problems. And uh, Bob is like, oh. I get it. You're a good therapist. Okay, well, I'll be seeing you real soon. I'm your new patient. And Dr. Marvin's like, no, no, I'm going on vacation. I'll see you in a month. And Bob does not like this. He is a troubled man, and he needs constant help from his therapist. So Dr. Marvin's solution is, oh, well, I'll just give you my book. Read that. And then after Bob leaves, there's a funny moment where Dr. Marvin talks to his secretary and says, okay, we're going to bill this guy. And don't forget to bill him $29.95 for the book. He wasn't even giving him a copy of the book. He was charging him for it. I missed that line, and that is totally unethical. (laughs) I think it's like when professors write their own book and make the students, like, have to buy that book. I think that's ridiculous. If he wants to give it to them, I think that's perfectly fine. To learn more about me and my style of uh, psychiatry, read this book. That's fine. Let me sign it for you. You know, good luck, Bob. But I can't believe he sold it. I didn't even ask him. He just, like, charged him for it. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, That made me laugh. I thought that was really, really funny. But while uh, Leo kind of breaks maybe a, a doctor-patient uh, yeah, ethical line, you might say that uh, Bob starts breaking maybe the patient-doctor line because he starts calling Leo multiple times and trying to get through him. Now, Leo's now on vacation, and it's this stereotype that you can't find a psychiatrist in August because they take all of August off. That's a stereotype? Yeah, it's kind of a stereotype. Psychiatrists all take off in August. and uh, I did and, not know that. Yeah, it's a thing. I don't know if it's still true, but it's like the stereotype. He says, you know, I'll be away for a month. I'll be back after Labor Day. There's an answering service that like only patches through to him because it seems to be an emergency and it's Bob. And Leo's like, I can't help you, Bob. And then uh, Bob calls back and hires a, a woman on the street to pretend to be Leo's sister and says like his sister is in an accident or a hospital or some emergency. And then, of course, you know, Leo will listen again. And he's like, no, it's me. It's Bob. So he gets uh, really pissed off. But then the third thing Bob does really crossing the line because, you know, uh, Leo told the answer to was really you shouldn't be patching these things through is Leo goes to the call center pretending to be a cop and he flashes a blue shield uh, health ID or something. And he says, uh, this guy, Bob, who keeps calling, he killed himself. And now I have to talk to to Leo. So I'm going to need the address of where he's going to be. And Bob takes a bus up to the town in New Hampshire where Leo's staying yeah and leo's pissed and he's shocked and he says okay fine i will talk to you go into that coffee shop i will call you at four o'clock and bob is like mm, could we maybe make it 3 30 just like a throwaway line i thought that was really funny and leo's like 
Bob. And Bob's like, okay, okay, I'll go, I'll wait. And he goes into the coffee shop and he mentions that he's waiting for the phone to ring because, you know, it's a payphone and he yells at some other guy who goes to pick up the payphone. This is long before cell phones. And the coffee shop owners are like, oh, you're waiting for a call from Leo Marvin. Huh, we'll take you to his house. And the reason is they hate him because. Dr. Marvin bought their dream home and they had been saving and saving and saving. And Dr. Marvin came in at the last second and swooped in with a ton of cash and he bought the house. So these coffee shop owners hate him. So they're like, oh, we'll just bring you right over to him. And they kind of become like recurring characters where they're always there to just kind of laugh when something bad happens to Leo or, you know, shake their head when he does something wrong. And um, when Bob gets to the house, Leo is understandably pissed and he doesn't want him around. But he says, look, I'm on vacation. You should be on vacation. Vacation from your problems. And Bob's like, oh, that's brilliant. You're the best therapist ever. You're a genius. And he leaves. And Leo is very proud of himself. He figures he just solved the problem right away. But of course, it's only like 20 minutes into the movie. So that's not right. Right. And, you know, he comes over to the house. So the family's meeting Bob and they find him to be kind of charming and he's kind of humorous and and harmless. And so you're right, like Leo kind of gets to be kind of a hero in front of the family. And he looks pretty good right now. It's like, good for you, dad, and good for you, Leo. But Bob misinterprets Leo's advice and he decides that he needs an actual vacation and he decides to stay in town for a month. So he has now completely injected himself into the life of of Leo and he winds up hanging out with uh, Leo's daughter, Anna, and he goes sailing this part. I do remember from the uh, the trailer. It's weird how I remember these memorable scenes from the trailer, but there is a yeah. funny scene when Bob is uh, tied to basically the mast of the ship, and that seems to be the only way he was able to overcome his his fear, and he's basically sailing, and he's like screaming, I am sailing, Leo! I am sailing! And it's a very, like... 80s 90s Bill Murray kind of scene and and it was nice it was one of those like here's something out of the Bill Murray vault and it was just that just rang to me I'm like this is classic Murray yes exactly and it's very very funny and then Bob also connects with Leo's son Siggy like Sigmund Freud and also Anna was Sigmund Freud's daughter Because he's a therapist. Like, this is just, you know, that thing of people naming their kids after their thing, which is terrible. But Siggy can't dive. And Leo is really mad at his son because he can't dive. And I don't understand this at all. It doesn't seem like the kid's afraid of water. He just doesn't know how to, like, dive from the dock into the lake. Like, so what? Who cares? Why is this a thing? It's so random. No, I understood it. Like, diving is a thing that, like, when you go to camp and you do, like, instruction swim, like, there's a whole thing about the, like, five points of diving when they don't just, like, say, just 
jump head first, like arms first into the water. Like that's all it is. It's something that I could see, uh, I guess you might call it type A father, like Leo is going to do with his kid. And I might mention the children are played by uh, by kind of famous people. Uh, the son, uh, Sigmund, he's played by Charlie Cosmo, and we've seen him in uh, Dick Tracy and Hook, and he's been in mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. And the daughter, she's played by Catherine Irby, and she was in uh, Law and Order for years. I knew her originally from uh, the show Oz. Uh, she was this serial killer named uh, Shirley Billinger, where she's like this adorable little woman who's like decorates her cell and like, you know, all these motherly little things. But she's like a horrible, horrible person. But so it, oh. I, I love her. I think she's a great actress. So it was nice to see both of these people pop up here. And the wife is played by Julie Haggerty, who I see and immediately think of her in Airplane. Of course. Because I've seen that movie a million times. She's done other things, but I just think of her from Airplane. Right, right. You know, there's something weird that uh, Leo does. He talks to his children through puppet therapy. And I don't know if it's a real thing, honestly. I know there's something called play therapy. So maybe this is a real thing. But it doesn't come across as something that he should be doing to his presumably. I mean, what's she supposed to be like? 16 years old, 17 years old? Like, she's like a teenager. And he's doing this like, "Ah, ah, 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 Anna. Like, I can't hear you unless you're talking with the puppet. And it's like, this is probably something they did when she was like eight or nine. Like, your daughter's age. But like, seriously, she's probably like, she looks like she drives. Well, she does drive and she is uh, supposed to be a teenager, but she's like in her 20s when this movie was filmed. Like she doesn't look like a teenager. Right. That's why I can't really picture what her age is supposed to be. Because they give her these like bangs to kind of cover up that she might be a little older than she's portraying. But uh, that's exactly what it was because there was something off about her being like a couple years older than Charlie Cosmo, who's like a little shrimp in this film. Yeah, it doesn't really work. It's very, very strange. Um, But the thing we're supposed to get from the puppet therapy is that this guy is acting like he is this great, amazing psychologist and, and therapist, and he's really good at doing what he does. But he can't even talk to his kids and his kids don't really connect with him and his kids don't really like him. But the son learns how to dive with Bob. His daughter likes going sailing with him and like eh, Bob's doing a pretty good job. Meanwhile, the dad really isn't. And he dropped his son in the water when he was trying to teach him how to dive at like the worst possible moment because he was like, don't let go of me, dad. And the dad, it was an accident, but uh, because he's distracted by seeing Bob sailing, but he He does drop his son. So the son is having trouble with his dad. And he's actually having a better relationship with Bob in some ways. Right. And when Bob teaches Siggy how to dive, uh, Leo is so upset that like he shoves Bob into the water and then he's soaking wet. So the wife invites Bob to stay for dinner. And this is another classic Bill Murray scene where he's just really enjoying the dinner and he loves everything and everything is so amazing. But also, at one point, he's like, hmm, I see salt and pepper on the table. Do you happen to have a salt substitute? And, you know, just like these little things that are him being quirky and the rest of the family loves him and he's adorable. But Leo is flipping out. He hates him and he really wants to get rid of Bob because the next morning, Good Morning America is coming to interview him about his book. And I gotta say like picking good morning america does stand the test of time that is a show that is still around and they still do interviews like this 
I assume. I don't really watch Good Morning America. Uh, but he just wants to have this moment where he can talk about his book and he doesn't want Bob around. But then it starts raining and Bob is there overnight and he's there when the Good Morning America crew shows up. And not surprisingly, they're like, oh, your patient is here. Let's have him in the interview, too. Yeah. And this is when it gets interesting because the entire movie has been building up to this interview. And Leo just kind of freezes on camera and he talks incredibly robotic. I made this book to make psychiatric terms for the layperson to understand. He was horrible. And Bob is is actually coming across pretty well on this. He's saying, like, this book is working really well, and Dr. Marvin's been such an inspiration. He's so brilliant. And had Leo kind of just chilled out and, you know, played along, even though it's completely obtrusive that he is on this interview, it kind of could have gone well, in my opinion. But through Leo's own doing, the interview is, it's not a disaster, but it's a kind of a farce because he's not really going along with what Bob's saying. It's kind of fighting him a little bit on camera. And the people you were talking about earlier, the kind of nemesis of Bob, they're cheering like, ah, you doofus, you look like an idiot. And I think it's all Leo's doing here. And this is when you're starting to really see that, yeah, even though Bob is kind of crazy, like Leo's kind of losing it. Yeah, very much so. And you're right. Yeah, Leo could have leaned into everything that Bob is saying and made the interview work. All Bob is doing is like saying effusive praise about Leo. Like Leo should be going with it, but he can't because he's just off his game. Yeah, he was kind of nervous, but then he just makes it worse and worse and worse. Yeah, one thing that really angers Leo is that he says he's totally cured in three days. And to be fair, the point of his book is called Baby Steps. Like, you will not cure yourself in three days. This is a slow process. This is Baby Steps. So you're right. He should have just kind of smiled and been like, well, I'm very happy for his progress. This isn't usually as quick as it usually happens. You know, you're right. He just kind of keeps like pushing it and antagonizing him and he winds up looking worse and worse right so everyone is telling him right after we're like oh the interview went great and you know even though the neighbors can kind of see what was really happening really it kind of didn't necessarily come across too poorly you know outside of leo's own mind but leo completely loses it he throws him out of the house but then inside he has a change of heart and he decides ah no no come with uh, for a ride with me And he basically lies to uh, Bob and he's not taking him for a ride. Well, he does take him for a ride, but he's taking him to an inpatient psychiatric facility. And he had called one of his colleagues who obviously had, you know, heard his diagnosis and like, oh, we'll definitely admit this guy. So the big strong people come and, you know, he's like, Leo, don't leave me. And Leo's super happy that he's, you know, gotten rid of this plague on himself. But the next thing we see is he's back at the uh, inpatient facility. Facility, and Bob has completely charmed everyone there. And he's doing like a stand-up routine. And there is a part I laughed out loud. He goes, Roses are red, violets are blue, I'm a schizophrenic, and so am I. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very, very funny. He also does a joke about a sex addict, which is very funny. And Leo's friend is like, yeah, uh, your diagnosis was wrong. This guy is fine. He needs to go home with you. 
Otherwise, it'll be embarrassing for you if it gets out that you tried to have this guy admitted. And, you know, Leo's getting more and more frustrated. He literally kicks Bob out of the car and, like, makes him walk home. But then he gets a flat tire and he gets stuck in the mud. And, you know, then a car drives by and, like, splashes mud on him while he's changing the tire. And by the time he gets home, it's really late. His family is there throwing him a surprise party. It's his birthday. Uh, His wife had mentioned that earlier, that she was throwing him a big surprise party. And for a second, he's happy, even though he's disgusting and covered in mud. He's happy to see his friends. He's happy that his family is there. But then he sees that his sister has flown in from Chicago and Bob puts his arm around her of like, hey, I'm still here. I'm part of the family. He has his arm around his sister. And this makes Leo furious again. And he tackles Bob. Yeah, I actually interpreted that the sister was there because of Bob. Is is that true? Like, I no. thought he... Oh, okay. So I thought it was one of those, like, yet another thing that, like, Bob's not such a bad guy, but Leo's totally not leaning into that. But, okay, all right, so she was coming anyway. Yeah, that was, like, the surprise that his family did of, like, hey, you've missed your sister, and we had her fly in from Chicago. But then it's also weird because later that night, the sister is like, well, I'm flying back to Chicago now. She flew in to New Hampshire from Chicago for a couple of hours. She wasn't even going to like spend the night at their big, huge house on the lake. I'm sure there must have been a room for her or she could have stayed at an inn or a bed and breakfast or something like hang out for the weekend, Lily. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, like you said, Leo tackled Bob and Leo winds up getting knocked out. There's a funny scene while Leo is knocked out where Bob is talking to the psychiatrist and like making recommendations of which prescription psychiatric drug he should be prescribing. And and the psychiatrist agrees with him. Ah, yes, that's a really good idea. Yeah, he knows his medication because he usually takes these medications or that's what's implied. And so the doctor is like, oh, yeah, good idea. And Bob shouldn't be making recommendations to the doctor. And also while Leo is sleeping it off, his wife basically says, listen, Bob, we love you. We think you're great, but we are going to ask you to leave because for whatever reason, Leo gets triggered when he sees you and you have to go. I don't think they use the word triggered, but I appreciated that moment because they're doing the right thing because they want Leo to get better. They don't really understand what's going on. But when Leo wakes up, he decides he's going to solve his Bob problem once and for all by murdering Bob. And this is a really weird turn. I mentioned this last week when we were talking about First Kid, where the villain in that movie, like, all of a sudden decides to murder the kid. And I was like, whoa, that's a weird turn. This also feels like a really, really weird turn from Leo. Like, yeah, I get it that Bob's annoying, but like... His solution is just to murder him? Um, I really think that Leo has just snapped. And I think the movie does a good job of it's a very slow descent into madness. But Leo has completely lost it. And he holds him at gunpoint. But he decides he's not going to kill him that way because that's too easy. And I guess uh, his solution is to strap a whole lot of explosives to Bob. It's on a timer of sorts. And he's just going to go away. And then that'll be the end of Bob. And, you know, I'm thinking like, yeah, there's really no escaping from this because I'm guessing even if Bob gets out of this, like, holy shit, that's attempted murder. But 
Bob doesn't see it that way. Bob sees this as a brilliant form of extreme therapy, which he later calls death therapy. Well, that's what Leo calls it. Right, right, right. But um, Bob misinterprets this attempt at his murder, and he goes, oh, he's tied me up because it's a metaphor that I'm tied up with my problems, and the bomb is, if I don't fix this, I'm going to explode. And he he's like, wow, Dr. Leo's so brilliant. And he basically, like, you know, frees himself. And he's like, he wants me to be free, but he, he had to put me in this situation. So Leo was, like, super happy now that he's back with his family. He thinks he's gotten rid of Bob. Bob shows up out of nowhere on his birthday with a birthday cake. And he's like, happy birthday, Leo. And Leo's like, what? How'd you get here? And where's that bag that I had tied around your waist? And he goes, I put those in the house. And just then, the dream house in New Hampshire on the lake completely blows up. And then the people who hate Leo are in the boat watching and they start cheering. And I get it because they're happy that something bad happened to Leo. But I also didn't really think that they should be cheering because they like the house. And ideally, they would want Leo and his family to move away so that they could buy it. If it gets blown up, then they can't have it someday either i felt like it would be a more of a bittersweet explosion for them oh no 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 they're falling by the seven words of if i can't have it nobody can and so i think they're very happy because leo at one point like screams at them like hey i outbid you guys and bought it fair and square like he kind of rubs it in his face that like it seemed that they had basically had some kind of down payment and then this like rich uh, you know city boy comes in and just like dumps a boatload of money and just took it away from them they would rather it be destroyed and nobody gets it than uh, Leo continuing to have it. I guess, I guess. But then Leo is like in a mental facility. He's basically comatose. He has like entered into this like catatonic state. And I was kind of confused by that. I'm like, well, does his family know that he tried to kill Bob? I mean, how else would they explain the explosion? And surely Bob would say, he put some explosives on me, but it wasn't real. Oh, but maybe it was, but he must have not known it was real. But then they would find out that he broke into the store in town and stole the explosives. I didn't really get what happened. And clearly you're not supposed to think about any of that. I did think of one part of it, actually, and I was like, oh, as long as he's able to think of some kind of story that he gets away with, the insurance should cover it. But, like, what's the story? Boiler exploded or something. How brilliant a forensic investigator does this small town have? Maybe it's it's obvious, maybe not. I have no idea. But, uh, you know, maybe he gets away with it. But he stole the explosives from that store in town. He smashed the window. That store is going to report all of those cans of explosive missing. I don't really see how he gets away with it. But whatever. The joke is that Bob marries Leo's sister, the one who flew in from Chicago for just a couple hours. And then at the wedding, when they say, if anyone objects, speak now. And everyone kind of looks at Leo and the camera lingers on Leo. And we think maybe that's when he's going to wake up. But no, he doesn't say anything. Then they are pronounced husband and wife. And then Leo shouts, no. And Everyone's excited because, hey, Leo's back and they're not even paying attention to the fact that he's mad about his sister marrying Bob. It's just like, yay, Leo's back. 
And then the movie ends with just this text on screen that says Bob goes back to school. He becomes a therapist and he writes a best-selling book called Death Therapy, which was what Leo was doing to him. And so Leo sues Bob over the rights of the book. And then the movie ends. And it is a very weird, abrupt, strange ending. But now that we've gotten to the end of the movie, James, what do you think about What About Bob? Do you think it stands the test of time? I like this film. This is a dark comedy. This is not a Jim Carrey, Dumb and Dumber kind of slapstick comedy. This is the kind of film that if they didn't cast correctly, this film would be horrible. Bill Murray, we didn't know it when this film came out that he would wind up being an Oscar caliber performer. But this guy has psychiatric problems. And, you know, while he plays the the role kind of funny, he also plays it, you know, pretty vulnerable too. I, I think he plays it very well. I think Richard Dreyfus is wonderfully cast. And Richard Dreyfus is always great. I mean, once they cast him in this role, I think they were high-fiving themselves that they got both of these guys. And the uh, side characters, the co-stars, like we talked about, uh, Julie Haggerty, uh, Catherine Irby, and Charlie Cosmo, they're all very good in this film, too. As a doctor, like, I felt very bad for Bob for a lot of this film, honestly, because I'm like, stop crossing the line. Like, do not look me up on, you know, my phone number and call me. That would be completely inappropriate if you didn't have my number already. But then there comes the point where it's like, oh, well, now you're doing some crazy stuff. And whoa, now it's completely ridiculous what Leo's doing. And I really like that very, very slow burn. And the other subtle things like you pointed out, the family themselves. This is not one of those like completely like, like Leo's going crazy. Like only he sees it's bad. No, his family sees it's bad. The script is is, is smarter than uh, it had to be. Um, or, or rather, I think to its credit, because it would have been a worse film if it wasn't as clever. But I think the film is just very well done, very well cast. And another great thing about this film, Al, it's an hour and a half. It's like an hour and 37 minutes or something. That's exactly what it should be. There's probably a two-hour version of this film where there's a couple, you know, Bob scenes that are not that funny. That, that's just my guess. It's a shame I hadn't seen it before. And if you haven't seen it and you're a fan of Bill Murray or just, you know, a fan of a, of a you know, a film that is a dark comedy, then I would say, see this film. It does stand the test of time. Well, what do you think, Al? You had never seen this film. Do you regret never seeing this one? Does it stand the test of time? Well, I mean, I totally agree with you about seeing a Bill Murray movie. Like, there are a handful of other Bill Murray movies that I haven't seen that we will do on the podcast, as well as movies that I have seen. Yeah, I mean, you got to see every Bill Murray movie. So, yeah, definitely a, a treat to find that. You know, in terms of things that don't stand the test of time, there's a, a couple of references to Dr. Ruth. At one point, you see Siggy playing a Game Boy. Everything that Dr. Marvin wears is, like, so terrible. Dr. Marvin's summertime outfit is these super short shorts and these really, really high socks that are, like, up to his knees. It's just laughable. But everything that is great in this movie is Bill Murray and his chemistry with Richard Dreyfus. They are so good together on screen, and apparently they hated each other during filming. They have both said that they really got on each other's nerves, and Frank Oz was kind of saying in interviews that he kind of liked that they annoyed each other in real life because it kind of made for better on-screen chemistry. Um, I was kind of surprised and 
frankly, a little bit bummed that they hated each other in real life, but it did make for for better on-screen chemistry. I think my biggest gripe with this movie is that the ending just feels weird, not only just because like, oh, it's violent and oh, this guy turns to murder, but like it wasn't the ending I expected. I really expected that Leo was going to realize that, you know, he has a lot to teach his patients, but maybe just maybe his patient could teach him a thing or two. Oh, exactly. That's where I thought it was going. And the fact that it doesn't go there is fine. You know, that's okay. They they can do something unconventional. But I just kind of felt like, so what is the lesson? What is the payoff? Like, what is the arc? If Leo doesn't have an arc, fine. Does Bob have an arc? Maybe. Like, is he cured? Is he supposed to be cured? Is that what the movie's saying? That Leo really did treat him and quote unquote fix him? I don't know if that's the point. I do also think that it's very fair to say that this movie doesn't really treat mental illness in a way that you would probably do it if you remade this movie now. I think there would have to be more seriousness and not just like, oh, this guy's in therapy. That means he's crazy. I mean, they never say that, but that's kind of implied. That was like a a subtext I was getting from this movie. Yeah, I totally know what you mean. Yeah, he was a jerk, but he didn't really deserve to go crazy and basically not be able to speak at his sister's wedding. It's just a dark ending. That's just what it is. Yeah, I appreciate that it's a dark comedy, and I appreciate that the movie takes some weird turns. I just, at the end, I was like, huh, that's it? Oh, it's not a satisfying conclusion, in my opinion. Um, But what works is like all of the jokes, all of the Bill Murray stuff, every like little throwaway line about the salt substitute and, you know, just all of these things. It's really, really funny. It's definitely worth watching, but I don't really think it stands the test of time. I think if they were to remake this movie, they would have to make many, many changes, but also don't remake this movie and they couldn't remake this movie and they shouldn't remake this movie because what makes this movie watchable is Bill Murray. I don't think Bill Murray today would do this kind of movie. So I'm glad that I watched it. I'm very happy that I have seen a Bill Murray movie that I hadn't seen before. Like, yay, I'll I'll count that as a win for the movie I watched this week. But no, I, I don't really think it stands the test of time. I do see the flaws that you see in this film. It teetered on the side of standing up for me, and I I enjoyed it for all the reasons you enjoyed it, but my conclusion was a little bit different. But you're right. Uh, One thing you say that's very true is that this is not a serious mental illness film. You're not going to get a look into depression or schizophrenia or mental illness by studying Bob or what a psychiatrist does by by studying Leo. I think it is what it is. It's a fun comedy, and for me, it was uh, you know two great performances, uh, you know all great performances, and a fun package film. Yes, I do think there is uh, good stuff. I haven't seen the movie Anger Management in a long, long time, but I feel like there's definitely some elements of this movie in that movie where, you know, like there's a therapist relationship and a guy who has anger issues and it's not an exact parallel, but um, I don't know, maybe we'll do that on the podcast at some point. Yeah, yeah, we will. But you know what else I'm looking forward to coming up, Al? What's that? The Winter Olympics. Oh, yeah, you like the Olympics. I don't really care. Oh, 16 days of glory, Al. 
So next week, in honor of the Winter Olympics, we're going to be reviewing Cool Runnings. Yes, that's a based on a true story movie. It's got John Candy in it. I've never seen it, but I'm excited to watch that movie for the same reason I was excited to watch a movie with Bill Murray that I'd never seen. This is a movie with John Candy that I'd never seen. Yay! Really? You've never seen Cool Runnings? I haven't. And I, I said that to Courtney and she was like, really? And so she's excited to watch it uh, again. But no, I've never seen it. Are you going to watch it with the family? I think so. Yeah, I've got to. It's on Disney+. Plus. It's John Candy. Why the hell not? But until then, of course, we want to hear from you. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. What do you think about What About Bob? Do you like movies with question marks in the title? This is the third one we reviewed. Quick, James, name the other two. Who Frame Roger Rabbit? And, um, hmm. Uh, I don't know. Tell me. Oh, brother, where art thou? Ah, good one. Yeah, I would not have thought of that right away. Uh, that's okay. We'll see you next week, everybody. Goodbye. Bye.